Hi, I'm David Ramos. You're listening to Music Talks, discussions on music education, a podcast written by future music educators for future music educators, brought to you by Florida Nathany Collegiate. Summer has just arrived, which means music teachers can put away their laptops and take a break from virtual learning, a phenomenon no educator was ever expecting would take over the profession just a few months ago. Something else unexpected, Because students have physically been away from the classroom for so long, they are actually looking forward to going back to school. This is especially true of college music students, who quite frankly miss making music with other people in person. As we discussed in our last episode, it's apparent how there is something physically, socially, and physiologically powerful about making music together, and how that has been well known for quite some time. I alluded to important events that helped shape music education into what it is today, and decided that for this episode, we would take a step back from the present reality in order to revisit those historical moments and more. This episode's topic, History of American Music Education, learning more about the past to understand how it affects our present and can guide us towards a better future. From Florida NAFME Collegiate, this is Music Talks, I'm David Ramos, Stay with us. Hello. Hello. Hey, Michael. How's it going? Going pretty good. Just, you know, another day in the life. Okay. So this episode, History of American Music Education, kind of a part two to what we did last episode. There was a collegiate panel with the outgoing and incoming executive boards, and that was actually a lot of fun, especially for me. Uh, Living in quarantine can be challenging. So it was really refreshing to hear from my friends and colleagues across the state and discuss one of my favorite things, music education. So instead of looking at the present situation like we've done in the past, we decided to take a glimpse at what happened in the profession's history that has shaped it into what it is today and how learning from the past can help the new generation of teachers shape the future. And again, because I really enjoyed the conversation from our last episode, we decided to host another panel. This one featured our new advocacy chair, Addie Burwell. I'm Addie Burwell. I'm a music education major from the University of South Florida. And the members of this year's State Advocacy Committee. I'm Mike Gunter. I'm a second year sophomore at Florida Southern College studying music education. I'm Karina Franco. Going into my third year at USF, I'm a music education major with a minor in psychology. My name is Gina Rand, and I am going into my third year as a music education major at USF. Also, you'll recognize Soria Perry, who is serving on the committee again. Hey, y'all. I'm excited to be back. My name is Sawyer Perry. I am a third year at Florida State University. Now, before we get started, I just want to let our listeners know None of us are experts of the history of music education, and that is understandable. We are college students, after all, we're still learning, so we don't know everything there is to know about our future profession's past because we haven't been taught it yet. Fortunately, I knew just the individual who did. I love it. All right. Dr. Kelly, good to see you. David, good to be here. All right, do you mind uh, introducing yourself, uh, what you do, who you are? My name is Steve Kelly. I'm professor of music education at Florida State University, and I'm also president of the Florida Music Educators Music Education Association. 
and you're also the author of Teaching Music in American Society. I am. So today's episode, as you know, is on the history of music education. And I feel it'd be appropriate to start with the main person who you may call the father of music education. I think you know who I'm talking about. That person would be Lowell Mason. Lowell Mason was a very interesting man. Uh, he was a composer, an arranger, a choral conductor, although he was also a clarinetist. Uh, Lowell Mason was known for lots of things, but one the thing that he was uh, most known for personally was Lowell Mason was a marketing genius. He could sell and get people to do anything. I tell my class that Lowell Mason could sell them property 30 miles south of Key West. He was, he was so good at it. And Lowell Mason was director of a choral program in Savannah, Georgia, when uh, the Bach Oratorio Society job in Boston came open. And this is important because at the time period in the, in the 1800s, Boston was considered the cultural capital of the new America, the new United States. So when he arrived in Boston, he went uh, to the Boston School Board and asked to see if there were any teaching jobs there. And he was told that no, that, that there wasn't any teaching jobs there, that uh, uh, you know, schools just didn't have music because not everyone could, um, could benefit or participate in music. They didn't, the school board didn't feel like that people were capable of, uh, of performing, only certain, certain people, as I said. So uh, Lowell Mason was really shocked about this and determined to try to change the perception of people. So what he did is that he uh, volunteered to teach for free one year in the Hall School, H-A-W-E-S. And uh, it was quite shocking at the time because the Hall School was considered the absolute worst school in Boston. Um, the, the, the kids that went to school there were thought to not be capable of doing anything, much less music. But Lowell Mason, this new guy from the South, came to Boston and said, no, 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 I'm going to show you that anybody can learn music and benefit from music. So he did. He taught while he was also being this, this choral director, this professional ensemble. He also uh, taught for free in the Hall School for uh, one year. At the end of that year, he did a public performance on the steps of the Boston School Board uh, performing Wildwood Flower, a choral piece, uh, Wildwood Flower. And all of the historical records noted just the exceptional performance quality of this ensemble. The people were just amazed that these little kids could, uh, could perform. And when they asked, well, where are these kids from? Where are they, where are they from? And uh, Mason responded, well, they're from the Hall School. People were just in shock that uh, such quality music performance could be uh, learned and exhibited. And consequently, they went and said, well, if they can do it at the Hall School, I want them to do it at my school, and I want them to do it at my school, and my school, and my school. And they uh, pretty much demanded uh, the Boston School Board uh, start music in the, in the schools. So in 1838, the, the school board did indeed adopt music education in the schools as a result of this performance. And consequently, Lowell Mason is known as the father of American music education. And all that's really important because we, we can learn so many lessons from history. And we can, music educators can certainly learn from Lowell Mason. 
in terms of the fact that, one, he believed everybody could benefit from music and everybody had a right to music and everybody uh, can perform music in, to some extent. And again, we're, we're debating that today because people don't have to be in music in secondary schools and a lot of people don't believe that music needs to be in the schools at all. They don't see the value of that. Well, Lowell Mason very much saw the value of that. He also uh, believed that you need to demonstrate music. And he did it in a way that he got people really excited about music. So he did uh, a public performance of a large ensemble. And that, law, that model of music education uh, has remained in the school since 1838, where basically American music education is based on a large performing ensemble performing in a public performance. And that has served us really well for many, 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 many years. It served Lowell Mason well in that he generated enough public enthusiasm that the public demanded that music be uh, implemented into the schools. Something, again, we can learn from today, that when people start talking about, well, I want to start this program or that program, or people get threatened with cutting this program or this music program, Lowell Mason taught us that we need to get the public on our side that uh, once people start to hear music and want music in the schools, it is very difficult for administrators or policymakers to, to cut uh, music programs, and much less deny the, the existence of this. So we, we have lessons to learn from Lowell Mason. At the same time, there's some, some caution with this in terms of that Lowell Mason model of American music education being the large performing ensemble in a public venue. Uh, again, that has served us well, and we have pretty much kept that model since 1838, all the way up through 2019. Uh, unfortunately, though, society has changed, and we have not adapted that model to the changes in society. For example, smaller uh, individuals, such as solo and ensemble, the opportunities for individual creativity and expression sometimes gets lost in that. Just the, in, just the entire diversity of, of uh, the music curriculum gets lost in that. But still, we can still look at our very beginnings and the success of those beginnings, because literally since 1838, millions of people in, in our country have been successfully educated in the Lowell Mason model. We just need to perhaps think about adapting that to the changes in society. How can we adapt what Lowell Mason believed and have it fit in our current music education programs? For me, what I'm taking away from the Lowell Mason model is that at the core of music education from the very beginning is community. Um, so it all started out like as a spiritual thing, people gathered to feel good about things. And that's kind of still the purpose that music has in society. So as long as we keep that at the core, that's how music education is going to continue to thrive. It's a little hard right now with, you know, the whole COVID thing, but we discussed, you know, on the last episode that this whole situation is very temporary and coming together to make music is the core of what we love to do anyways. When we're talking about the Lowell Mason model, I can't help but think about what we do and what we love most, and that is advocacy. Because so much of what his model is, is showing what music programs can do to the community. You bring your ensembles out into the community and you bring music to people. That's why we got involved in music um, and Will Mason know that. And uh, that's how we get people interested in supporting these programs. 
So when we were talking about advocacy, we should definitely keep that in mind. We should be using that model in our advocacy efforts. How can we bring music to the community and how can we get people interested in what's happening in our schools? The Lowell Mason model marked the turning point for music education. Schools wanted music programs and used them to attract more students. By the beginning of the 20th century, music education reached a golden age. In teaching music in American society, Kelly writes how music curricula expanded to include opportunities in both performance and non-performance classes. Schools hosted music appreciation contests over the radio. Band leaders such as Patrick Gilmore and John Philip Sousa toured the country, holding concerts in cities and towns across the United States. National interest in music education grew to unprecedented levels. And then... Today, a new moon is in the sky, a 23-inch metal sphere placed in orbit by a Russian rocket. You are hearing the actual signals transmitted by the Earth-circling satellite, one of the great scientific feats of the age. Sputnik. The, everything that music gained in the progressive era pretty much came to a screeching halt with uh, Sputnik. And Sputnik was, uh, Sputnik itself was uh, a Russian satellite. It was about the size of a basketball. <clears throat> and you, you wonder, well, why does a satellite worry us? It wasn't the satellite, it was the rocket that the satellite was attached to that, that worried us because we, we knew the Russians, this was in the height of the, um, of the Cold War between Russia and the United States, and we knew Russia had the atomic bomb, but what we didn't know is that they had the capabilities of, de of delivering that atomic bomb to uh, other countries such as the United States. And so automatically there was um, the first back-to-basics uh, back uh, movement in which people suddenly said, well, we're behind in music. and we're, I mean, we're behind in math. We're behind in science. And so all this other stuff such as music that we've been living off of. Uh, we need to get rid of that so we can concentrate on English and math and science and make sure that people don't kill us. And we really thought we were going to be killed. Well, the, the people, oddly, the people that saved us in this was the scientists, and, and Albert Einstein was the leader of this group. And Einstein said, you know, we need to, to remember that, yes, we're behind in uh, math and science, but we also need to think about what happens when we train somebody to push that button to send that rocket off. And Einstein was a musician. He was a violinist. He wrote an incredible book on music acoustics. Um, he is quoted as saying that if he wasn't a scientist, he'd, he'd rather be a violinist. Einstein understood the humanistic aspect of music and what it brings to people. And Einstein thought that the best way to train people to understand that if you push that button, other people are going to die. And that was um, saved music education in the schools. People paused to go, okay, maybe we do need a, a broader approach to this uh, math and science thing. And that started a, the question about, well, what role does music play in the, uh, in the American society? And that led to the development of Tanglewood. Tanglewood was uh, a chance in the late 1960s for people to come together to look at the role of music, not just in the schools, but at relationship to also to communities and society. So it was a gathering of musicians and sociologists and psychologists and business people and politicians all looking to see, okay, what 
do we need to in order to provide the best possible experience. The head of that, uh, the big committee on that was called the GO Committee, the Goals and Objectives, G-O, GO Committee. It was headed by Wiley Housewright, who at the time was the dean of the College of Music at Florida State University. And they looked to see, okay, they listened to everybody's um, talks about this and ideas on this, and then they put together, what are we going to do with it? And Dr. Housewright said, well, we need to expand music education. If it's music, if it's important in, in society, then it also needs to be important in the schools. So that was really the first time that we came together that um, popular music, such as, as, as uh, this thing called, new thing called rock and roll was there, and country and western, and barbershop, and all kinds of different kinds of music that was happening in society that's when it first started to be heard and experienced in the public schools. So I think what's first really important to establish about this thing that they came together and did at Tanglewood was they kind of established as a whole ideals um, that we kind of as a profession all agree upon or that they believe that we should agree upon. And we as individuals each day kind of assess how what our actions uh, are match up to these ideals and how they relate to them and them coming together at that time was kind of a group um, evaluation saying how does what's happening and what's happened um, play into them um, and I'm gonna quote a paper MENC from Tanglewood to the present by Michael L. Mark. Uh, Daniel Booston analyzes the relationship between past and future by differentiating the seers and the prophets of ancient ages. He writes that the seer forecasts how events turn out, while the prophet prescribed what men should believe and how they should behave. This distinction also holds for the Tanglewood Symposium when MENC emulated the prophet, not the seer. So there it just basically says that people at Tanglewood were not saying what they thought would happen, but what they thought should happen, which is really interesting because, you know, things go wrong all the time or people think differently. But what I was trying to get at with this specifically is that what happened then is going to continue happening within our society. And we use music as a platform to advocate for so many amazing other cultural and societal developments that we are talking about. One specific tenet that I really liked was tenet number sixth of the Tanglewood Declaration, which was greater emphasis should be placed on helping the individual student to fulfill his needs, goals, and potentials. Um, we all as music advocates and music edu educators have been affected by music in more than just we learn to play an instrument, which I think is one of the greatest tools to advocate for something in the world. So using music to do so much more than just learn how to play an instrument or learn how to play a piece is extremely important to remind everybody. So to begin with, as a future music educator, I feel like it's really important to learn about Tanglewood and all of the tenants that were proposed and the implications following it. All of the individuals from different respective fields that came together is just proof to show that music is just as important and valuable as any other academic subject. Hence, all these studies that have been put into other subjects have now been put into music as well. But moving on to the implications of that, one of the tenants spoke about um, bringing music into the community, helping the inner city, and just bringing arts to the local community. 
And I think that's really special and important in addition to all of these people from respective fields coming together because it shows that music is for everyone and music is, it's an innate humanistic art form, you know, only humans experience music in the way that we do. No other species does. And I just think it's beautiful and it's a really great thing. And I think it's important that we try to reflect that and bring that into music programs in the future. So we have that symposium, it was important. If we didn't have it then, we probably wouldn't be where we were today. But even with all of those discussions and this print document, we still saw a bit of a decline in music. People still weren't as interested in it. Parents and administrators were still focused on, again, quote unquote, academic courses. And what Dr. Kelly mentions, back to, there we go. So despite the Tanglewood Symposium's strong recommendations, varying degrees of success marked the expansion of school music curricula over the next 30 years. Uh, social issues often affected the music education profession. These issues frequently related to school and community financial insecurities, increases in school populations, a concern for teacher and educational quality, a growing debate over the inclusion of religion and moral education throughout the school curriculum, and increasing calls for a stronger emphasis on core classes considered necessary to the country's economic and military power. Uh, again, those academic courses, the maths and the sciences. So because of that, uh, music education had to, again, backtrack and think, okay, uh, how do we move the profession forward, especially considering we're about to reach the new millennium? And that is where we get uh, this next symposium, which is the House Rights Symposium on the Future of Music Education, Vision 2020. And the purpose of that conference was to look to see what music needed to do. This was in like 1997, I believe it was what music education needed to do in order to be a viable component in the music, in the school curriculum in the year 2020. I think it was, was it 97 or 99, Division 2020? Uh, it might have been 99. I can't remember. It was, it was I double checked. Year, it was 1999. September 23rd through the 26th. Yeah. It was an interesting conference. People from those 350 people from all over the country, uh, they had quite the quite the uh, debate. It got very vocal, very loud. Uh, the accusations were flying back and forth. And you know, I used to say when it was all over with that, that we failed. But I don't, I don't think we did. I think, I think what Vision 2020 did was plant seeds. And seeds uh, to think about different ways of growing music and having music experience in the schools. It was the logical next step to uh, the Tanglewood Symposium, and I'm sure you know about the Tanglewood Symposium, and you know, we had been, you know, several decades beyond Tanglewood, and so this, to me, seemed like it was timely and necessary. Speaking now is one of the participants from Vision 2020, Dr. Deborah Confredo, Professor of Music Education at the Boyer College of Music and Dance at Temple University. I asked if she could talk about her experience at Vision 2020, and discuss some of her takeaways from the symposium. It, it was it was sort of a, a time for me to take my own temperature. You know, what am I doing? What am I doing in my own practices so that I can implement some of the ideas that were being uh, discussed? And one of the things that I that I took away from uh, that experience was that I mean, nobody has a crystal ball, uh, and maybe that's a good thing. On the other hand, we all have a responsibility of of leading the culture forward. It helped to shape my teaching after I, I left 
insofar as I, I absolutely wanted those tenets to be part of what I was giving my students, whether it was at the undergraduate level or the graduate level. In some cases, it was overt. Um, in some cases, in other cases, I should say, it was covert, right? Where I'm taking some of those ideas and some of those tenets, I'm using those things to add uh, questioning techniques to what I'm doing in order to get my students to think and question themselves, right? In other words, sort of like a, every time you go into the classroom, it's like almost like a mini conference, a mini uh, reflection of what that, what that conference was so that those students who are going to go out and start teaching have, are, are, are you're putting them in the same mindset that you have, questioning what they're doing, providing themselves rationale for what they're doing, and keeping themselves open to you know, what might happen next, right? So if we don't do that, then we're, we're always doomed to be, to be in the same place all the time. So that flexibility to be open and think and listen and be critical, right? It's not just, you know, accepting things that come down the pike um, for, well, it's just the way it is and, that's, and I can't do anything about it, but to be critical of things, not in a bad sense, but in, a, in an evaluative sense, right? So that we can just determine what the, what the best process is for our, the students that we're teaching. Uh, you know, it was, it was an important moment in our history and uh, to have been there was, um, uh, you know, it, it was just a, it was a gift, true gift. Obviously, music education has gone through um, an evolution since 1999. Uh, but do you believe the symposium had a direct impact on that evolution, or was it just kind of the idea that the culture is changing, so music education is changing as well? Right. Yeah, so that's a great question. And I would say, uh, and again, not just one tiny voice, right? But mm. What, my, what I would say would be that it would be kind of a combination of those things. And if you go back and you read those things, which, which of course you are, to me it is, in, in, not, not in all cases, but in, in many cases, particularly the essays that have been written by the, by the original speakers and the respondents, it, it is amazing to me how much of those goals that have been put out have been met or are in the process of being met or have have made their way into music education curriculum. Um, so I don't know that anybody can go back and say, well, it was absolutely because of this conference or it's absolutely because of the, uh, the of societal changes or cultural changes. But what we can say is that, you know, as society and culture manipulated itself and moved across the, the, the next two decades, Many of those things that were discussed um, ended up being uh, actionable items in, in curricular change, you know. Now, did it come from, from that? I don't know, but what I can tell you is, and, and actually I'm going to pull out my book here. I have it. I knew we were going to talk today, so I actually pulled out my book. It's like falling apart. Um, I went back, back, oh, this is a long time ago, and I, I kind of highlighted all the people that I knew, and there's a ton of people that I, I knew, and I can tell you that lots of these people who were in higher education, who were uh, who were participants in this, uh, more than likely, um, be, more than likely because of their participation, because of their you know their seat at the table, would again my guess I, I don't know this for sure, but my guess would be that the, these are folks who would have, would have brought some of these ideas to other people. You know, um, 
and 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 therefore uh, the, these shifts and changes started to happen at a granular level right after the conference was over. So would you agree that even if educators nationally aren't completely aware of the symposium, they're definitely aware of the teaching practices that came from uh, those conversations and from the individuals who left the symposium? Right, yeah, and you know, I, I, as I was talking to you previously, I mentioned the Tanglewood Symposium, and actually, Tanglewood is, is a good litmus test, uh, not a litmus test, it's a good uh, model, I guess, for me to, to use here, a good example, um, because, you know, the, the Tanglewood Symposium was, you know, like 20, 30 years prior to the Vision 2020, and so, you know, in looking at my own development as a music educator, music teacher educator, I didn't know about Tanglewood until I was a graduate student, you know, mm-hmm. so, um, and that speaks to, I think it, it speaks exactly to your question, and that is, you know, as an undergraduate learning to be a music teacher, um, unless somebody says to you, hey, let's take a look at the Tanglewood Symposium and, and, and see what impact it has on the specifics of, and, the, and, the, and the behaviors of what we do as teachers, Unless that happens, I, I don't think it's going to happen organically or naturally, right? So, so my guess is that uh, those who who know about those things and use, when I say those things, like for example, the Tanglewood Declaration, um, and, and use those ideas to try to steer uh, curriculum to in, in, in specificity, right? So, what, what do I give my students every day to learn how to be a good teacher? Uh, what do I do from the podium to, to be a good band director? Those things end up being maybe not a, an overt uh, uh, philosophy that hangs over my head, but they somehow become embedded in the things that I do to bring the best possible teaching to my kids. So for me, similarly to you looking at Vision 2020, for me, it was Tanglewood, and how does that, how does that apply? So initially, it's going to apply as a a silent guide and eventually and when somebody brings it to your attention like dr kelly is it becomes more than a silent guide it becomes it becomes more vocal quote right you know what i'm saying no i understand so uh, the implications of vision 2020 what do you believe that a lot of those takeaways are for end service and pre-service teachers today one of the things that that i would Sort of my um, my own personal mantra for uh, for the upcoming conference is that we make people aware that um, you know society and music and teaching and, and people are malleable. At the same time, we you know there are a lot of things about music and teaching and society that are stable. You know, and so how can you use those two ideas in order to continue this forward march, no pun intended, so that we keep getting better and better and better at what we do? You know, so for example, and I'll just this is just an easy example. It's the technology one, right? Mm-hmm. So back in 1999, the internet was young, really young. It wasn't nearly as um, there weren't as many capabilities with it as there are today. Right, and so we, we couldn't even see the possibilities of what we have now back then, right. you know. And so, so one of the things that for pre-service teachers and in-service teachers, that's a certainty in my mind, is that what we what we know today as 
being stunning and outstanding and, and sometimes mind-blowing, if you think about it hard enough, you know, um, we'll, in 20 years we'll become, oh yeah, I remember when we used to do that, isn't that cute? You know, you guys in 20 years when I'm, God forbid I'm still teaching at 81, but so when you're 41 and you're looking back on even this conversation, I hope it makes you smile, and, you, and you'll say, yeah, I think you know, Dr. Confredo was right. Look at us now. Uh, and God only knows what that's going to mean in terms of technology. And so what does that mean for music education? Well, thinking about access and equity, right? Mm -hmm. um, 20 years ago, the world was a larger place, uh, not physically, but in terms of of, of who could access what when. And that has everything to do with who gets music, right? And so now with, with technological advances, the, the uh, opportunities for uh, folks who had none 20 years ago are just off the charts. And so what, what's going to happen in another 20 years? And so to answer your question, um, what does it mean for you as a pre-service or soon-to-be in-service teacher my hope is that it means that, that uh, uh, we, can, we continue to A, keep our minds open, B, know what, uh, what it is to be a good music educator and always be able to um, uh, evaluate some of the new things that are happening uh, and, and pick and choose those things that we know are going to be uh, the most helpful to, to bring good music at a deep level to most people, right? Mm -hmm. um, and what that means for me uh, is that, you know, there are lots of things that we've been doing for decades that are really good. And just because something's new doesn't mean that we should throw out all the old stuff, you know? So, I'm, you know, I'm an old band director, basically, and there's tons and tons and tons of really good music that we've been playing forever. And so, should we throw those things out just because we have something bright and shiny and new? And the answer to, to, to that for me is no. But what we do know is that there's going to be new things coming down the pipe that are going to be exciting and beneficial for our students. And so to keep our minds open to, to engage in all that is an absolute have to, you know? So, so that constant professional development, I think, is, is really, the, the, for me, the, the, main, the main takeaway uh, from, uh, one of the main takeaways from Vision 2020. Based on what we've already discussed, why do you think it's important to be aware of how music education has developed in American society moving forward today and in the future? This one, I when I saw the question, I really, you know, not knowing much about the history of music education in America, because I haven't gotten to those courses yet, uh, it really intrigued me. So I started doing some of my own, just light reading between when I saw this question and now, um, and it makes me think about you know we as people we go towards what we're familiar with and first impressions are really really strong um, and for that reason in order to be a strong advocate for anything really you have to know your audience you know what do the American people know about music education right now and the best way to learn what they know right now is to look how music education has been viewed throughout you know its history so looking into that history gives you a broad sense of how the public has viewed it over time and helps you develop the best approach you can as an advocate. 
So I think it's extremely important for everyone to have even a rudimentary knowledge of American history, the American history of music education. Like going back to the whole Sputnik thing, um, talking about STEM in the arts and kind of how STEM is prioritized over the arts and a lot of education. Both of those subjects are important. They're important for different reasons. And I don't, I also don't want to pretend like the Russians weren't also excelling at music during the 20th century because the best pianists in the 20th century all came from Russia. But the arts are also important for individuals. STEM is important for society, but you also need music and all the arts in general to have a culture. Um, the issue that I see with a lot of this is that STEM was evolving throughout this. During the 20th century, you know, we put man on the moon. We kept playing the same music. We kept having concert band like we had it 50 years prior um, in the middle of the 20th century, and we still follow that model today. So while it's important for us to take the history of music into account, we also have to see how are we going to innovate it not only keep up with the rest of the world, but keep up with how society is changing as well. Um, teaching something that is antiquated, while it might help us feel good and help us with our tradition, I'm not sure how much it does to feed into this pattern of innovation that we see with STEM. So for us, we have to make sure that we're also constantly innovating as well. Band orchestra and chorus and that little Mason model is always going to be there. Uh, and I think it always should be there. It's vital. It's been successful. We shouldn't change that. But not at the exclusion, though, of the consideration of other possibilities of making music. Because as we saw in the progressive era, not everyone wanted to be in a performing ensemble, yet people wanted music experiences. And right now, if we can provide that, then maybe there's a chance that we can return back to the height of that golden age music education back in the you know, early 1900s. And this is coming from band guy, you know, not everybody wants to be in band orchestra chorus. And we've seen growth when we've offered things like guitar and digital music, uh, composition in some cases, technology in a lot of cases. Uh, it really gets people excited about different ways of music education. This episode featured the new State Advocacy Committee Chair, Addie Burwell, as well as the State Advocacy Committee. Musical selections for this episode included Arabesque by Claude Debussy, Joy to the World, arranged by Lowell Mason, Wildwood Flower, performed by the Carter Family, The Stars and Stripes Forever by John Philip Sousa, Largo from the New World Symphony by Anton Dvorak, and Symphony No. 3 by Camille Saint-Saëns. Special thanks to our guest speakers, Dr. Steve Kelly and Dr. Deborah Confredo. On behalf of Florida Anatomy Collegiate, I'm David Ramos. Thanks for listening to Music Talks.